John Maeda would rather be curious than afraid, despite the tectonic shifts happening in our world. AI, artificial intelligence, is reaching new milestones that foreshadow big changes in many careers. Some ignore the changes on the horizon. Others acknowledge what's to come, but are paralyzed by fear. John Maeda takes a different approach. He just keeps reinventing himself. John jumped from MIT, where he was a professor deeply invested in technology, to the Rhode Island School of Design, where he shook up the traditional notions of creativity as the president of the college. He then went on to Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield & Byers, one of the most respected venture capital firms where he brought design and venture capital closer together. In this episode, John shares why he's always starting over and reconsidering his assumptions, and he lays out some of his principles for embracing career and life changes. Warning to those not in the technology world, there will be some nerd talk in this episode, but typical of John's approach to everything, he makes it accessible to all. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to live it better. I'm Aaron Walter. I'm Meredith Black. I'm Bob Baxley. And we'll be right back with John Maeda. This series is brought to you by Indeed Design, a resource for designers and researchers and all UX professionals who do design work that matters. If you're thinking about working in UX or you want to take the next step in your UX career, Indeed Design can help. Visit indeed.design for tips and tools for people of all levels. You'll find articles to help you refresh your portfolio, build more accessible products, improve team culture, and so much more. That's all at indeed.design. My name is John Maida. I'm really interested about the intersection of technology design and business, really. It's just interesting to me, and I learn something new about business every day, something new about design every day, something new about technology every day, and then I kind of put the three together and see if they fit together or not, and just like, oh, well, there's a dynamic there. So, John, we start the show with a little lightning round. So you look like you're ready to play. We got 11 questions. Here we go. Laptop or desktop? Laptop, like a desktop. Nintendo or Sony? Neither. Hmm. Paul Rand or Susan Kerr? I've become more Susan Kerr over the years. Steve Jobs or Walt Disney? Both are rumored to be bad people or even like close-up people like yourself, Bob, love Steve Jobs. So if you love Steve Jobs, I love him too. There you go. Hypercard or Python? Oh, Python. Infinite Loop or Apple Park? Uh, Infinite Loop. Edison or Einstein? Einstein. Good hair. Taste or data? Taste. MoMA or the Met? Gotta say MoMA. Warrior or Sage? Warrior. Poetry or prose? Poetry. Nice. Okay, well, I get to ask the first question this time, and I'm going to go to a quote. You quoted David Bowie in the intro to your book from a 1999 BBC interview, and Bowie said, speaking about the internet, he said, quote, it's an alien life form, and it's just landed here. I'm curious, like, why you picked that quote 
And your book talks a lot about the scale of computing and what's happened. This is the, your book, How to Speak Machine. I'm curious why you picked out that quote and how you've experienced being part of the internet as this alien life form has sort of enveloped the whole planet. I think it's because I had the fortune of starting from the atoms of computing. I designed microchips and I moved myself up through microcode and hardware, you know, PC boards, et cetera, built computers and did software at a high level with like Lisp and AI type things in the 80s. And I began over time realizing that this world of the computer, you might be able to see it with your eyes, but if you close your eyes and imagine what it's thinking and what it's doing, it's like a whole different universe. And when I saw Netflix Stranger Things, and there's that moment of the upside down world, I was like, oh, holy, that's, that's it. That is the world. That's what was called cyberspace in Neuromancer. It is an alternative reality, not VR, that is incredibly powerful, strange, dangerous, but also good if used for the right thing. And so when I saw the David Bowie interview, 1999, BBC, I was like, huh, he really was an alien. He understood that this nether force had landed in our reality. It's dangerous, but also kind of exciting. John, in your book, you also say, I've always believed that being curious is better than being afraid, which I like that. It's very uh, glass half full rather than glass half empty. But these are strange times, and there's a lot to be afraid of, especially with technology and AI. It's sort of unknown, hard to predict how the human relationship with AI is going to unfold. How do you stay curious and not afraid in that context? Well, I think like when I was quoted as saying design doesn't matter by Fast Company and the internet kind of blew up from design world at me, it was really exciting because, as we all know, user research is a powerful tool. So suddenly I had access to all this data of all these people who thought, I thought you'd do this. I thought you said this. I was like, I said that? I did that? Or like, you do this. This is what I think you do. I was like, yeah, that kind of sounds familiar. But I began to understand the gestalt of what people think that I may have done. And it came out at the time of crazy rich Asians. And so there was a whole thread of, this John guy, he's like a crazy rich Asian, filled with privilege, has no idea what it's like to dot, 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 which I found fascinating because I did consider that my own privilege lets me be curious and others may not have that privilege to be curious. I think some of you know that I was never a crazy rich Asian. So I grew up in a tofu store in Seattle, so but I can see that, oh, okay, but Round truth, I have privilege as a man, for instance, or having had some success. And so when I say I'm curious, I realize, wow, what a great luxury to get to do that. Number two, I think that being afraid is something that makes sense because we're biologically designed to not want to die. What stops us? You know, you're like standing near the edge of the staircase at the very top you're not going to like nudge yourself over too far because it's a bit scary. So I wanted to understand fear better in my life. And I think that that's where I kind of ended up. 
to be more curious, perhaps. You know, John, I've always been so impressed and inspired by your ability to kind of completely reconstitute yourself as you go through these different environments. I mean, you've kept a thread, like you've been John through all of it, but going from MIT to RISD, just a, a massive shift in context. And then RISNI to Kleiner Perkins, another, at least from an external point of view, looks like a massive shift in context. And Kleiner to your current role now, and somewhere in the middle, automatic. Like Those are really big leaps that few people are willing to make in their career. I've certainly never been willing to do that. And I'm sort of curious, like, what's the mental process you go through when you arrive at the idea that it's time for something new? Well, you know, nice thing about the internet Sometimes, you know, there's bad internet stuff too, but good internet stuff is someone will like quote something I said a long time ago. Sometimes I'm like, I didn't say that, first of all. <laughs> but sometimes <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I think I wrote a book on simplicity where I wrote that one of my exciting finds was in the martial arts of karate, that a black belt strives to become a white belt. How? Because a black belt, if you keep wearing it and washing it and wearing it and washing it over time, it gets faded and it becomes white. So it's a kind of a symbol of starting over again. And so that early kind of aha made me realize that, you know, starting over is a good thing because I think that when you get too good at what you do, you get stuck in your blah, blah, blah. And people look at you kind of funny. Like I loved being in the valley. I loved working with so many folks who knew so much more than me. I may have known a lot more about design and code, et cetera, whatever, but they knew how to build products at a level that I didn't. Whether meeting you, Meredith, or Bob, or Aaron, like, well, you know a lot more than I do. I better learn, number one. Number two, I heard of remote work was going to happen someday. So to get those two things to happen, figure out what the heck is this stuff that Bob and Aaron are talking about product design and all these other things. Okay. And I wanted to understand remote work, the pros and cons. So that's why I did that. Whenever I understand something, I find that I get lazy. And when I get lazy, I feel that I want to start again because I realize that someday I will not be able to regenerate myself. You know, your body, your brain doesn't come back. So until I can't come back, I'm going to keep trying, basically. So I want to add to that a little bit because a lot of people who listen to this podcast are reconsidering their lives, reconsidering their careers, right? And I think it comes a lot easier to some people to take those big leaps and explore and be curious. For the people who it might be a little scary or they don't want to jump outside of their comfort zone, so to speak. Do you have any advice for how to get them to kind of cross the line and explore? Well, you know, the only way to cross a line is to know that you'll be able to get back up again. So I think financial stability is a ground truth that if you have, it enables you to take a chance. Like, why is it that so many startup founders tend to be coming from wealthy families so that they're the ones that can eat ramen and sleep on the parents' couch, which is like kind of like, wow, how do they get to do that? And so <laughs> they have basic financial stability, number one. So like, do you have enough money in the bank to kind of like make it for a few months? Okay, you do. Well, it looks like you can take a chance. Number two, 
do you have a network of friends or people that love you? Or do you have like a pet? You know, it's because when you fall down, it gets really hard to get back up. So do you have a network? So do you have basic financial security to an extent? Do you have a network of friends or relatives that will love you unconditionally as you fall down? And number three, have you asked yourself, would you be happy two years from now if you're still doing the same thing and getting a little better every day? And that tends to sort of either make people say, thank you very much. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Let me give examples. So Casey Rees, who is the co-founder of the Processing Project, I consider him one of the most interesting people out there who took a leap. In the 90s, he was at a firm called IO360, which was the IT digital agency of its time. And he kind of showed up at MIT and said, I really want to understand how to code and do visual art at the same time. And I said, well, you're going to have to learn how to code. And I don't know how many people I used to tell that same thing. Well, you got to learn how to code. Otherwise, you know, said, yes, thank you very much. And they would never come back. Casey came back a year later with a laptop. He opened it up and he showed me all this stuff. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. He like basically quit IO360, <laughs> financial stability. <laughs> yeah. He took classes at NYU to learn how to code. And then there he was doing stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, this, this is it. And I think that's a kind of example to me of like, well, it's possible. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, one of our other guests is Dan Pink. And in his book, The Power of Regret, he talks about the four classes of regrets. And one of them is foundational. One of them is what he calls boldness. And then there's also moral regrets and connection regrets. And a lot of what you're describing is, you know, what could lead to boldness regrets, you know, and people having the courage to leave something behind and be bold enough to lean into the future and do something new and different. You know, it was during the Obama era, and I loved The Audacity of Hope. I loved that book, and it changed my life. It, it made me want to escape a comfortable reality of MIT and try new things, and it was so inspiring. And I was at an AIGA New York event. It was something that Paola Antonelli from MoMA was hosting. She asked me on stage, what's the difference between audacity and courage? And I got caught in my blah, 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 and I realized, oh, that blah, 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 no good. So I went researching what the answer might be. And then I found something about going back to your warrior sage lightning round question. And it was the fact that a warrior is interesting because a warrior always works from a place of courage because they know what they're getting themselves into. Whereas audacity is not thinking deeply about what you're getting into. So audacity is usually a sign of youth and like, you know, jackass the movie, let's try it out. Coming from a lot of privilege, capability, like stored up stuff. But courage is something else. Courage is like, okay, I could lose a lot. I'm going to take it on. So I love courage, but audacity is not a bad place to start. John, one thing I know about you is that it seems the way your brain works is like a painter. I got a BFA and an MFA in painting and drawing. And that type of thinking is always taking things in, it's always curious, and it's always remixing things. 
And you always are looking at little bits and bobs. You take notes, gather things, and you're always remixing, even in your physical space, like in your studio. I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about the role that discovery and curiosity and remixing plays in your life and how that has you know, maybe played into your professional life too, your career. Interesting. I, I think you answered the question for me because you reminded me about your painter comment, which I find very sweet. And I don't think I'll forget this conversation because it's, it articulates something that I wasn't sure about. So I was talking with a professor at RISD. He was the head of the printmaking department. He was also head of the one of the unions and always like trying to like take me out. So he's a little <laughs> scary guy. Um, but you know, I, I like not, to kind not of like, take hey, you out for for a meal, but take you not out. a meal like <laughs> take me out. And um, so I was hanging out with him, and he was saying like, "Well, you know, because an art school is different from an art department in a university. An art school, there's all the quote unquote disciplines. It's like a centrifuge where there's." painting, there's illustration, there's graphic design, there's industrial design, there's architecture, there's interior. In a regular big school, you'd have just the art department. But at art school, it's, it's a centrifuge. And so he said to me, you know, John, the reason why these different disciplines are so important is because each young person comes with a different processing style. So in printmaking, you have people who are really good at carving into copper in reverse and spending maybe two months making the matrix and then finally printing it out. Or if you have a glass blower, they're just like in this living sort of earth moment of making the form happen along with gravity. Or a painter, he gave the example, is really kind of living with the real material and kind of like collaborating with it as the image is forming or reforming. And so I think the answer to your question for me now would be that I remix a whole lot because I keep dabbing into different things to kind of see if they make better sense. And I'll keep finding the subject and the background, or I'll keep trying to find a relationship between them. And I so often fail. And I'm like, what did I make? <laughs> <laughs> um, I appreciate those moments. There's one piece that you're missing, though, in your process, though, that I, I think is interesting, is that mm. uh, you could do that all in private, and no one would know it. But oh, you actually right. remix things, and you put it in public. And sometimes yeah. it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Yes. And so to bring this full circle, there's a fair bit of courage that's required in that discovery and remixing. Well, you know, over time, I realized how much of that is tied to male privilege, actually, when I share things online. Like, more than ever, I, I feel that these days. Yes, I've been courageous, but then I always consider, especially these days, like, wow, I can do this, but who can't do this? You know, who will get attacked or who will get disliked the moment this goes live, you know? And for that reason, I've shared much less over the years because I feel like, yeah, I don't think it's as good for me to do more of that. Uh, instead, I like to find other people's stuff and push it out there. I find more joy in that, really. Was there something that happened? Because that was, 
I can see that in your book too. You talk about that in the, in the final chapter. It seems like there was kind of a transformation for you. And I'm wondering if there was, was there a moment when that transformation happened or was it kind of a, an awakening, if you will? Well, really the experience of being in the Valley made me realize I kept meeting all these top designers and they were all dudes. And I was like, just at an art school where it was majority women. So I was like, hold it, hold it. So why are there no women at this thing or speaking at this thing, you know? And so that was the start. And then as I began to double click into it and just get closer to that world and realize, hold it, hold it. You mean that if I change my avatar to be a woman's face and I make my name, first name into a woman's name, I'm going to get hit on all the time? And I was like, oh, well, this makes any social media system unlivable. Those moments I experimented with to kind of understand, of course, I could never fully empathize. I'm, I'm not in that world. But I began to realize how important it is to do the work of being a feminist. And then I spent time, because of the Audacity of Hope book, I spent time in Detroit with African-American communities. And Aaron knows some of this because our worlds intersected. Because I remember then there was the whole election of Trump. And then there were all these pictures like on TV or online, like these people don't like you because of how you look. So I went to Kentucky, Appalachia to visit people. And I remember like within a half an hour, I understood, oh, this is why you don't like Obama. I didn't know that it's because all these coal mines got shut down. And yes, coal is not good for the environment, but if that's how you make your livelihood, it's kind of important. <laughs> important. So I think those events began to make me care about it. Every day, I, I'm just concerned how unfair the world is to those who have less privilege. I think it's important to do the work of an ally. I like this phrase, do the work of an ally versus I'm an ally. Because I'm an ally assumes like, did it. <laughs> do the work of an ally is like, got to keep doing it. But again, I have failed so many times in this journey of trying to be an ally so many times. So that's why I think people don't do it because they make a mistake or they hurt someone's feelings. And you're like, oh, as I've told you, I'm pretty happy making mistakes because I can recover quickly. You seem pretty fearless in that respect. And I want to dive into this a little bit because you have five daughters. Yes. And I don't know if a lot of people really know that, right? And so you've raised five strong women. And so you're kind of guiding them. And so you have the responsibility to turn them into good humans. Because you are so well-known and because you are so well-respected, especially in the design world, how do you put forth the message to other leaders to do this as well? And do you feel like you have a responsibility to do it? Do you think that people should just innately try to figure this out? Or how can you get others to better lead? I feel lucky that I awoke from a sleep that I didn't know I was, I was under a sleeping beauty sort of spell. What's helped me is realizing that I look like this. I look Asian, which I never really thought of, <laughs> which I think if I thought of this earlier in life, I may have been more thinking about it, but I was doing my work, making my stuff, you know, and on the, on the average, it turned out okay. Didn't have to think about it very much. With that fortune, I do feel a responsibility to do what I can. When I say what I can, I wish I was able to do a lot. 
but I do what I can. And by being older and knowing people who may have children or may have like nephews or nieces, whatever, who may have the situation similar to me, like, oh, you have a girl or, you, you know, it's like we can get into a conversation like, oh, yeah, well, you know, you got to think differently about this, you know, like, well, what do you mean? So I immediately, because of smartphones, I'll pull out the Pixar short Pearl about the yarn ball. And people like look at that like, what is this? Or like, they'll say like, I love Marvel films. Oh, let me show you the article about when Brie Larson was criticized for not smiling in the movie trailer for Captain Marvel. And that gets them every time. Because when that happened, when there were the angry people saying like, Brie, smile, women should smile. There's all these photos of like Dr. Strange smiling and Tony Stark <laughs> smiling and Captain America. It's like, that's kind of weird. How come that? <laughs> Whatever. And so the dissonance is fun. So because of where I am, which is far from the design world now, talking to different enterprise executives, it's kind of fun. Like we're at a golf outing and like, you know, I'll talk to the head of sales of so-and-so and they're like, come to me later during the day. Like, I am thinking now. <laughs> I guess design is about that. It's about creating emotions among people face-to-face, -face, IRL. I find that an important task to be a part of. I want to switch again to another thing, which is the conversation around AI. How can we use technology to make our world more equitable? Well, I'm really interested in privacy technology because we know that African-American communities have always been concerned about their surveillance state for good reason. And so there's so many hints of, you know, how that kind of thinking has actually need to be made a consumer question of how much privacy should we control around us. And I think once you realize how much data you keep exuding, losing, and can't control... I find that a way to, to at least sort of like combat things. The second thing is to use media, like I described, to share with different people. Never share online, whatever, because no one's really looking at it. But so when you're sitting there with your phone, it's like, you know, they can't like be on a Zoom or Teams or whatever. They're like talking to you like, yeah, I got to see this. And like we close captioning. It's like, oh, you can hear it in a, in a loud restaurant. And so I think that, this is a tool in a portable form, the smartphone thing. I think privacy is important too. But I'm really happy to see all the young people bring this to the foreground, even in their work environment. I mean, like just looking at Bob and thinking of Apple in the Apple days, you know, for employees to talk about their technology publicly would be, quote unquote, difficult for their employment. I think that impresses me. In the book and in other places, you talk about the difference between cooperation and collaboration. And you define cooperation, I'm going to paraphrase here for sure, but you talk about cooperation as people coming together, but kind of at arm's length to achieve a common goal. And then collaboration is like, it's a full body hug, man, and we're in this thing together. And I found that to be really powerful distinction between the two. And it made me think about how, you know, ants and bees cooperate, but it doesn't seem that they're collaborating. We're collaborating in this conversation right now. And then in AI, when you were talking about the computers and how they all come together into the internet to create this sort of alien life form, it felt like the machines were cooperating, but not collaborating. 
And when I think about my career as a designer, and I think particularly about the young people on my team who are going to be doing this for years and years, like what's their job going to look like in five years or 10 years? Because I, I don't think they're sitting in Figma slinging checkboxes and radio buttons. And so I'm wondering if you've had much time to think about how humans and computers, AI, will collaborate or possibly just cooperate <laughs> to create the user interfaces of the future. Oh, that's a good question. I haven't thought about it. I guess my first reaction is whether it's Mac Paint, you mentioned HyperCard, or you know whether it's Adobe this, that, or it's Figma, you're collaborating with a tool, you think, but it's just a cooperation. I mean, it doesn't care a lot about you, and you don't care a lot about it too. <laughs> so at the end of the day, had a great session with Adobe Illustrator version of whatever it is now, but I kind of like Figma, so I'm going to go over there. So good cooperation. We cooperated. We made stuff. Collaboration is a deeper bond of trust, which I know you've created in this fellowship of the podcast here. It's a deeper thing. You're relying upon each other. You would hug each other in real life. It's like a given that this is a close group. And it's because you know that when you collaborate, the sum is greater than its parts. It isn't a transactional thing. Magic occurs at the boundaries you create that intersect. So I think AI in collaboration is best exemplified by all the GPT-3 large model AI work, where you see copywriters having copy written for them, sometimes built upon their ideas, but, you know, let's flesh this out. We're going to see that much more with anything involving what we display on screen because as we both know, or as we all know on this call, nobody wants to design 700 screens. I mean, if the computer could automatically generate it with your guidance, your direction, and actually it didn't generate those 600, it could generate 6 billion with your guidance, with your help, I think you'd be happier as a designer in the future. It's just that we haven't made that quantum leap, but every indication I have is playing with open AI is like, huh, it's going to be much more natural to collaborate with AI than it is the way we cooperate with design tools today. It's interesting that little thread from MacPaint to, so we say, Photoshop or Illustrator and into Figma, that continuum. Because I've also always wondered, like, we never seem to have the same interaction with our software tools that we do with musical instruments. And when you think about violinists and the love that they have for their instrument, or piano players get attached to a physical piano, it seems like there is a collaboration that happens with some of those instruments that we never quite get there with computers. And I, I was trying to think through whether we get there with cameras, or does a carpenter get there with their tools? It's something magical about a musical instrument, I think. If I may, may give you a comment on that, that is likely extremely irrelevant. But <laughs> when you describe that, I was thinking how when you play with a physical instrument, you're interacting with the environment, the waves, the age and everything. And so it feels more real because you know how to trust the real world. The physical laws, you've learned them since you're a baby. So there's something about when you're working with this physical instrument you're connected to the reality that you've learned and trust and love that, you know, I think any of us would love to fire up Mac Paint and do something, but 
I think I'm done after a little bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Got to get back to work. I had the fortune of getting to sit with Bill Atkinson, who created Mac Paint. And I'll never forget how he told me how at any given moment, there was only a few hundred bytes were available while Mac Paint was running because it was so like impossible to write within the memory constraints. And so I imagine like, you know, like in the Poseidon adventure with the water, there's a little bit of air, <laughs> the computer's breathing, it's struggling to breathe. And so I think if I use Mac Paint now, I would think of that and there would be love in the how to speak machine digital world. I think I would feel good. I would feel a little physical digital connection. John, how should people think about their future careers in light of AI and the role that it's going to play? I know this has sort of like been the boogeyman at the door for some time now, but it seems like maybe we're getting closer. And if it's a collaboration or a cooperation or a third, like door number three, which is much more dystopian, <laughs> like how, right. how should we be thinking about our careers in a new landscape? It's profound. I mean, that the third door of universal income or blah, blah, blah. I always loved that book. I think it was Reed Hoffman. It was like an ode to what color is your parachute. I forget the name of it. But it was all about how the old days you would say what you want to be and you would go to school to figure out how to become that. Whereas today, you say, I want to be that and you study to be that. And by the time you study the job's gone <laughs> or it's changed. I just right. love that thought. I love the irony of it. I love how education is completely disempowered. And therefore, the new generation really has to be literally agile, iterative, to be able to stay up. And so I have a lot of, I would say, sympathy more than empathy for everyone who's trying to find a way I mean, imagine in the days of Paul Rand or, you know, insert name of famous in general named male designer, they didn't have much of that stuff back then. Corporate identity was hard to find, those big jobs, right? And so I think that the whole creativity mind was mind. Like, don't you feel that? odd feeling when someone tries to show you a logo they've designed for their company and you're like, oh my gosh, this is so hard <laughs> to make something. <laughs> it looks like this and this and this and this and this and this. And it's like, well, of course, because in that square or golden rectangle or whatever, someone kind of made the, the thing. So originality, I find it hard for someone to get to find. So I feel sympathy. I can understand why younger people would feel concern. That said, I love them because they're always showing us how we're wrong. Like, whoever thought you could make a one and a half second video interesting? Like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> like, what is, whoever thought you could make a carousel of like four images that are low res interesting? I'm like, what is that? So... You know, sympathy, but also awe and like wonder. So, John, obviously, you led, you're president of RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, for seven years, one of the premier art schools in the country. And you must have been having all these thoughts when you were there as well. Like, what am I actually preparing these students for? 
How are you at least thinking about restructuring the curriculum and restructuring the education to try to prepare those students for uncertain, but, you know, broad and just unknown future? Well, I was lucky to be at MIT for my early career because I could see what was coming. Like, I remember showing up in the Valley and someone said, look at this. You know, it's just beginning to scale. Oh, I saw that like 15 years ago, whatever. So uh, that was a nice feeling to have. But then going into RISD, leading a, a large institution at scale, the first thing I, I learned quickly is that I have no control. And no matter what idea I have, it doesn't matter. And so things that I did, I realized had to be like the Keebler elf. In the United States, we have this notion of the Keebler elves make these delicious buttery crackers <laughs> for the Keebler cracker brand. <laughs> Not a product placement, but anyways, I realized that you really have to be that quote-unquote servant leader or behind-the-scenes leader to get anything done at scale. All of you who have led and know that challenge of, oh, you mean I can't make it this way? But I can change the conditions around things to let people find change on their own, quote-unquote, without your help. And so for me, one of my favorite things that I did as a Keebler elf was, you know, I would bring new things in, like I uh, moved it over to Google Apps, you know, when it was running on Novell and all these old things, and I, everyone hated that, of course, but over time it was like, yeah, I just made a Google site. Let me show you how to do it, old man. I'm like, oh, tell me, show me how. <laughs> how do you do that, you know? <laughs> or my favorite one was when Jack Dorsey was coming out with the Square device. And I remember like, oh, wow, that's really cool. So I walked up to Jack and said, hey, can I give that away at commencement? And so RISD was the world's first at-scale distribution of squares, which were 3D printed at the time. And I remember there was like a riot, like, John is destroying, you know, our place. And like, why would anyone need this dumb thing? And that was year one. And I brought Kickstarter and Etsy also there. That was even worse. It was like, what is this? No one will ever need this. And then the second year, I did it again. And I like even, I amped it up again. Like, oh, this is a dumb idea. But by year four, I was walking around campus and the head of the jewelry and metal smithing department, oh my gosh, I loved going there. They have every size hammer imaginable. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and then she was, came up to me and said, and she was part of the resistance also, it's very important, so uh, against me. And she was like, hey, John, we're going to have a, a show at Woods Gary, and we're going to have a pop-up shop this year. I know you like to shop. We're going to pop-up shop it. And I said, oh, that's great. I'll, I love to shop. I'll be there. This year, we're taking credit cards. I said, oh, really? Now, how are you doing that? Well, we use this thing called a square. Do you know what that is? I said, no, what is that? And she went on to describe what it was. <laughs> and I said, awesome, I'll be there. So it's moments like that that always made me happy. I think as leaders, we know we live for those moments. <laughs> they sometimes take years, as we know. But like, ah, what a nice piece. <laughs> yeah, it happens in parenting as well. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. How should we think about failure in our careers? Oh, my gosh. I have so many feelings about this. Thank you, Meredith. I cannot stand fail fast, fail hard, sort of made as sculptures or like super art in every agency because this will be unpopular perhaps, but I believe that the creative profession in general with these bold statements of failure and to 
kind of aggrandize, award these types of things is an example of how business people get afraid of creativity. Because as we know, someone who's in charge of managing risk for their business, the last thing they want to hear is someone's going to fail and you're going to hire them because they're going to fail. It doesn't match the physics of their mind. And so I like to always say it's not about failing fast. It's about recovering fast because everyone likes to recover fast. And recover fast doesn't sound cool because it doesn't have the alliteration. <laughs> recover fast. And also, this idea of failure is such a meme in the art sort of canon, right? But because of business, we have to consider that business people don't like that word. And so we want design to succeed in that space. Important. I love in tech, the tech side, I love SREs. Oh my gosh, I love SREs. I mean, the site reliability engineers are the coolest insects in the cloud, right? They're like the coolest people. Oh, it fell down. We're going to restore it. Awesome. <laughs> and so I think that is a success story. So I wonder who are the SREs of design. That's what interests me. And they, that may be saying that failure is good because SREs love like chaos. They love to fail because they know they'll come back. I love SREs. John, you have a set of rules, these axioms that guide you. I'm curious, could you share with our listeners what those rules are? Where do they come from and why are they important to you? Ah, uh, well, you know, I really do admire Bob's memory. I have a memory defect. I have dyslexia, and also I can't remember anything. You give me a number, I will not be able to remember it. A sequence, I cannot. And so I love the internet's ability to echo what you might have said, if it's a truthful thing you said, of course. And the four rules I put out there because I wanted to embarrass myself every time I failed at meeting any of those four rules. You know, so like one of them is like saying sorry if you did something wrong. I'm like, did I say sorry when I did that wrong thing in public? Mm. Or another one is don't speak ill of people. Uh, I guess I kind of dissed someone today. <laughs> kind of thing. Or the other one is don't be passive aggressive. I didn't know what this phrase meant, but after I looked it up, I was like, that's pretty bad. So just for context, I made those four rules to push out there. And I love when they come back and bite me because it forces me to say, ah, oh, maybe I can do better. So I want you to imagine 25 year old John. And I want you to put yourself back into that mindset. Imagine who you were, what you were thinking, where you were living, what your concerns were. And then I want this John to imagine sitting down with that 25 year old John. And that 25-year-old John, that student, that young person, what would that student say to you today? What kind of advice would they give you? You know, I've come to know that makers love to make. And there's an introvert tendency to a maker because you're happy to live in your world of making. And in later life, I learned that there are talkers out there who can't make a thing to save themselves. 
and they're always talking. And the talkers are always bossing around the makers. And a maker can say like, well, I'm not going to be a talker then. That doesn't have integrity. I guess the thing I would tell anyone who's a maker in their younger phase is that the talker is talking to people, talking with people, sometimes talking at people if they fail. But most importantly, they're listening to the other person talking. And in doing so, they create that collaboration part of being a member of the world they live in versus cooperating with their chisel or with their pen or the fibers of paper. And the talker part is a human part that in the end is going to help you back when you're down. I mean, when you're down and the paper is not going to talk to you, like think of a Muppet with a, oh, John, get back up. <laughs> you know, the paper's not going to do that automatically. But uh, you make a good friend, they're going to be there for you. That's what talkers do. They're smarter than makers. So that's a good answer, and we're going to hold on to that one and push you again, because that's oh. what 50 year, that's what fifty something John would say to 25-something John, Okay, 25-year-old John. The question was, uh, we're trying to do some reverse mentoring thing here. So what did 25-year-old John know that 50-something-year-old John's forgotten? Oh, you like 25 year old John, <laughs> but you know what he would say? 25 year old John would say the exact opposite that you know, John, you think this talker thing is super important, but it's maker land where all the magic really happens, it's where the integrity really lies. And so, I think you should start getting making and. Because 25-year-old John would be in tune with what 70-year-old Red Burns at NYU used to say to me all the time as I got older. She kept saying, like, John, you bleeping idiot. Will you just stop doing that thing you're doing over there and just make art, will you? So that's 25-year-old John and 70-year-old Red. I like red, so I'd like 25-year-old John to put me in my place. And then if that were the case, I wouldn't be talking to you all, and I'd be just making. (laughs) 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 He hangs up the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Last question. John, where can people learn more about you and your work? Ah, visit metastudio.com which I am making less bad uh, every month. Uh, It's uh, trying to put stuff there, knowing that I will be gone eventually. That site will be gone after I'm gone too. But while I'm here, come visit me. Fantastic. John, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. What an honor. Well, that was great. Awesome to have Jahan on the show and get to spend some time with him again. What'd you guys think? Meredith, you want to jump in? Oh, I always just think he's such a delight to listen to and learn from. He's so curious, which I think really helps. And he doesn't come out with like this like authoritarian view of how things are, how things should be. It's really nice and it makes you kind of relax a little bit and listen to what he's got to say and listen to his perspectives. 
I think the one thing that I really took away was that makers love to make. And that's so true. And there's the difference between being a maker and being the talker. And I think that's just a good reminder for all of us is that like we all started making and we can all continue to make and whatever we are in our journey and our careers or our lives, like we can always go back to that touch point where I think a lot of people don't think that they can. And so it's just a good reminder that you can. Meredith, what did you make of that comment about do the work to be a feminist, you know, and to be an ally? I was actually a little surprised that he said he kind of took this role a little later in life since he does have five daughters, right? But I also think maybe he was taking for granted that he had five daughters and just kind of raising them. And he he really thought like the world was a different place. And then he started discovering that it wasn't. And so I think he's really conscious about being an ally and actually being an ally, not saying you're an ally, which is really important. And I think anybody can say they're an ally, but like you have to do the work and you can tell that he's very cognizant of wanting to do the work and taking a step back and making sure that other people are rewarded and recognized and noticed. And it's not just kind of this homogenous group of people. It's always interesting to talk to John. So for listeners, John is someone that I've chatted with from time to time for a few years now. And I think a lot of people find him enigmatic. And Bob, you kind of touched on it with his career. These big leaps, MIT to Rhode Island School of Design to Automatic, which is the company that created WordPress and a number of other places along the way. You may not know this listener, but John Maeda's work is in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. I mean, he's a profoundly diverse thinker and a very creative individual. And he he's creative on many levels. So with code, technology, strategy in a business, it's just kind of pervasive. I think a big part of his success with that creative process and nonlinear career is what he talked about starting over, that he's always starting over. We didn't get to it, but I know that he thinks about this idea, it's a Japanese craft of kintsugi, which is breaking a bowl, a piece of pottery, and then reassembling it with gold that highlights the fissures, the breaks between it to make a brand new thing. And it feels like John's life and John's career is sort of Kintsugi-esque, that it's like restructured and reformed in new ways. And they're weird leaps. And if you talk to a recruiter and they look at a resume like John's, they would say like, this doesn't make any sense. I don't know where to put this person. And therefore, I can't really ascribe a value to them. But with each break, with each change in his career, his perspective becomes richer. And, you know, that breadth of his creative thinking, it's just, it's enriched. And I find that really inspiring. That's, that's what I want from life. I want growth. I want to constantly be looking at new subjects, new things with fresh eyes, instead of always operating from a place of, you know, that I understand what I'm looking at. Yeah, I like how he draws these contrasts between two similar words that we often kind of get confused. Uh, we mentioned at the end there, the collaboration versus cooperation piece was an interesting one. You know, makers versus talkers is kind of interesting. And he talked at the very beginning of the show about audacity versus courage. And I thought that was really powerful and how, you know, I think there's an audacity of youth that may have explained some of his early career choices. But you know, by the time he got to RISD, and certainly by the time he got out of RISD, he knew what he was getting into as he went through these various roles. And there does seem to be a really powerful courage 
to his ability to kind of constantly reinvent himself while maintaining some common threads through there. We talked in the first season with Maria Giadis, and she mentioned this, being able to find her sort of core superpower and finding these different contexts in which to practice that superpower. And I think, you know, John is sort of that on steroids, you know, and I, I meant it when I just like, I'm so impressed and inspired by his ability to have done that. And I thought, Aaron, you'd wrap, you, you had a nice metaphor there. It's kind of his career's like this remixing, that he's like a painter, kind of constantly remixing all these different ideas. As a leader myself in a design organization and in the process of trying to transform a company and make them more design-centric, I'm trying to cause some really foundational change in how people think. And so I really like that piece where he, he talked about when he was at RISD, he was trying to create the conditions for change so that others could find their own way. And his story about the square device and how that came back years later and stuff like that. I just thought that was, yeah, that's, a, that's a really inspiring leadership accomplishment and quality to try to plant the seeds and then know that they're going to bear fruit somewhere down the road. And you may or may not be there to see them and may or, certainly may or may not get credit. You look at uh, political figures, for example, and the things that they do can have impact decades later. I think about this with my kids and I call it setting traps certain things that I want to have in their environment that could lead to an interest, a habit, a discovery. For Christmas, there was a new chess set. There are certain records I put in the house in conspicuous places for them to discover. And, you know, I think about my childhood that there were some things that I just discovered in the home, like The Hobbit in seventh grade, where I picked that up and no one said, read this book. I just, it was there. And I fell into the trap and it was a great trap, a great trap of discovery. So whether we're doing that as leaders in, in our household, you know, as, as a parent or leaders in an organization, you can shape an environment to help people fall into positive behaviors and traps of good, of growth. One of the themes that kind of came out when I stepped back from the conversation a little bit, a few years ago, I, I said as my New Year's resolution, desire to see the world from other people's points of view. To like really try to inhabit their mind. And that eventually turned into me really trying to inhabit my dog, <laughs> so to speak, and trying to imagine the world from my dog's point of view. And you don't have to study animals too long before you realize that they have a completely different sensory experience of the world. Like they are just living in a completely different world. It, there is no analogy. I cannot understand my dog's sense of smell. It is beyond me, but I can recognize that it's something else that's going on. And John talked about how computing is that way. Like there's this thing going on with the computers and it's happening inside the box and we can't experience it, but we kind of know it's there. And he got into it a little bit when we were talking about the musical instruments versus software tools and how with a musical instrument, you're manipulating your external environment so you can interact with it. You can cooperate with the musical instrument in a way that you can't really with a piece of software because all the software magic's happening in this other quote unquote sensory space. And I also kind of tie that now to what he was talking about with male privilege and how as he's developed, I guess, or become more aware in recent years, and I've gone through this myself as well, as you start to talk to people who have, I mean, the, you know, Meredith, you move through a completely different world than Aaron and I do just by virtue of being a woman. And I don't know if John actually changed his avatar to a woman, but certainly people run those kinds of experiments to see what it's like. It does give you an appreciation that we're all having just wildly, wildly different experiences even though we may feel like we're inhabiting the same space. Well, it also creates like a sense of empathy, right? Like it makes you create empathy 
towards different environments, but also different types of people and how people interact. And I think that like gets into the whole human experience, right? Is that like you do a day in somebody else's shoes and things look a little different, right? And so it's like, how can you take that mindset and encourage other people to do it? And I think if you do it that way, I think you're going to have a much more productive, holistic, creative experience out of not only your life, but your career. Well, this has been great getting to spend the time uh, and to collaborate with the two of you and with John. Thanks again to John Maida for being on the show with us. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.